Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight until today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins, and today we're going to do something a little bit different. Often on this podcast, we talk about technology, right? Of course, airplanes are a piece of technology, and all our discussions of military aviation have at least some sort of connection with that technological hardware of the airplane. But as we all know, wars are fought by people and societies, and Those people don't come to the battlefield from a vacuum, even if they're space warriors. They come from cultures. And we want to talk about that today and how culture can affect warfare and uh, the perception of warfare and how people think about warfare. And we're going to do that through focusing on Vietnam. And we're talking today to Dr. Greg Dattis, author of Pulp Vietnam, War and Gender in Cold War Men's Adventure Magazines, a new book from Cambridge University Press. Greg Dattis is a professor of history in the USS Midway Chair in modern U.S. military history at San Diego State University. A retired U.S. Army colonel, he has served in both Operations Desert Storm and Iraqi Freedom. He's authored many books. I personally would consider him the top scholar on the Vietnam War. So, Greg, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Mike. I appreciate it. Well, let's dive right in. So for our listeners who might not know, tell us a little bit about what Pulp Fiction, not the movie, of course. Uh, what What is Pulp Fiction? What are these magazines you were looking at, and why do you think they're important to the Vietnam War? Yeah, so um, they're really, really interesting, and and I think in many ways they've kind of been dismissed as as kind of lowbrow cultural debris from the the Cold War era. That might be interesting, if not a bit titillating, but not serious work. And, and in fact, what I found is there's quite a bit here that really is insightful about Cold War culture and the construction of gender norms that are really important. I think for young Americans as they're heading off to Vietnam in the early to mid '60s. And so you know these magazines are, are part of a larger history of, of national magazines in the United States are kind of dating back to the mid-19th century. If we, we think about Harper's Magazine as an example, it, it's founded in 1850. So they're placed within a larger and much longer history of, of magazine culture in the United States. And, and by the time you get to the late 1800s, there are all these technological advances that are allowing publishers to publish at a greater distribution rates and at a much lower cost. And in fact, pulp, the term pulp comes from the fact that many of these cheaper magazines are produced from a a wood fiber base. So unlike the slicks, which have a thicker, meatier texture in in terms of the pages themselves, these pulps are, like I said, a wood fiber base. And and by the time you get to the early 1900s, you you start to see many of the stories kind of being formulaic fiction that holds broad appeal. Argosy is an early example of these men's magazines. Um, And, you know, by the early 1900s, um, 1905, 1907, Argosy is reaching half a million readers in the United States, which is pretty impressive. And then when you get into kind of that World War I era, you, you move into collections of crime stories like Black Mask and detective and Western hero pulps. Clearly, by the end of World War I, you're starting to see a lot of pulp titles focused on the American experience in World War I. Battle stories, War Aces is specifically a, a young men's or men's adventure magazine that is focused on aerial combat in World War I. And what I focused in on were these kind of post World War II aspects of, of these magazines that by the time you get to the end of World War II, where they end the, the wartime paper quotas, this popular fiction industry just explodes. And all of these new magazines start coming on the market. What I found interesting that really the target audience of, of the conscription efforts 
as the United States is heading into Vietnam, which is the white working class readership. And so they've got these, you know, exhilarating titles like Man's Conquest and For Men Only and Man's Epic. And what I found was unlike any other cultural product in the Cold War era, what they're doing is bringing into play two popular conceptions of masculinity. And that's why I think these magazines are really important because what they do here, unlike any other product in the Cold War era from a cultural standpoint, is pull together these two conceptions. And, and on one side is the heroic warrior, and on the other, and tightly intertwined with that, is the sexual conqueror. So the idea in these magazines is that these really strong, courageous men are going to go off, fight in, in these heroic battles, and then they're going to come home and be sexually rewarded for their deeds. And what I found is, I, as I was kind of studying these magazines, that they really are insightful ways for us to look at Cold War culture, that they're not these kind of lowbrow reading materials that don't make any sense to us anymore. They're, they're really insightful and, and tell us a lot about how the magazine writers and, and I think the readers viewed war and, and had very distorted versions and visions of war. And, and in the process, I think, helped normalize certain expectations about war. And part of those expectations, I think, were linked to a sense of what we would call today hypermasculinity, and in many cases, a version of war that saw sexual rewards and sexual aggression, if not even sexual violence, as part of the storyline and thus acceptable in war. And so that's why I think these magazines were really, really important for the Vietnam generation, because these young men that are going off to fight in Southeast Asia are, are consistently, you know, imbibing these messages, if you will, that are linking military service with sexual entitlement. And, and that is really, really appealing for, for the readership, and especially, again, for these white working class young men that are going off to fight in Vietnam, uh, many for the first time, you know, leaving the United States and, and going off and seeing what foreign land look like. Now, you are careful to say that you don't think there's like a direct causal relationship between reading these magazines and doing specific actions in warfare. What exactly can you unpack that relationship a little bit more? Yeah, and I, and it's a really important point, Mike. And I, you know, I was working with my editor, Debbie Gershonowitz, who's just phenomenal. And, and we talked about just that very thing over and over again of how, you know, I could not draw a straight line from if you read the magazines, you're going to go to Vietnam and be sexually aggressive or exploitive or potentially rape Vietnamese women. But but what I did find was that it, it opened up a, a rhetorical space that, again, normalized certain things so that if you did go to Vietnam as a young man who for the first time was seeing what combat or war was like, and you saw sexual violence happening, the magazines for you left open the possibility that this was just a normal part of war. And when we, we see this over and over, not just in the Cold War Men's Adventure magazines, but I just think in how we talk about war there. Rape is a part of war. Sexual violence is a part of war. It's just what men do in war. And so I think like having to be careful with making an argument that if you watch violent video games or play violent video games, that you're going to be violent in, in society. I, I think we need to be equally careful with that argument. I try to do the same thing here of, of being very careful with a, an argument on causality, that if you read the magazines, you were going to engage in sexual violence. It, it was never that clear cut. Um, and I never found a, you know, a smoking gun um, in my research that, you know, somebody that was being court-martialed for, for sexual violence saying, oh, I did it because I was reading the magazines. I never found that and um, probably not surprising. Yeah. So this is really interesting. This is the type of material that, you know, we don't think of scholars 
typically as engaging with this kind of pop culture material. So what drew you to this project and diving into these magazines? It was teaching. I was I was um, teaching at West Point. I was there at the time when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. This was in September of 2011. So topics of gender were obviously present, if not prevalent in, in the core cadets at the time. And, and a really good friend of mine, Jen Keesling, who's a professor at West Point, we talked about creating a, the department's first ever course on war and gender. And so we did that. The course we taught in 2015 looked at the evolution of war and gender in American society. So by the time we got to the Cold War, we were reading Kay Cordelone's Manhood and American Political Culture in the Cold War. Just a really cool, interesting book on just that political culture and ideas of masculinity and manhood. And I was doing some preparation for lesson planning and, and looking for images in the Cold War era of you know pop culture images of soldiers. And I came across this magazine called American Manhood. And it's from January of 1953. And obviously, the uh, latter stages of the war in Korea. And, and here's this buff Arnold Schwarzenegger looking soldier on top of a tank and he's holding a rifle and his pecs are just absolutely huge. I mean, it would have fit it right in with uh, Predator movies or Rambo movies. You know, on the cover is is not just this soldier, but then there's also um, a discussion about a, an inside article on on sex. And it just kind of opened me up to asking this larger question of where where did this magazine come from and what, what was this all about? And, and that just kind of led me down this very long rabbit hole of looking at how these magazines were portraying masculinity in the Cold War era. It really came out of lessons and planning and, and teaching and asking a question of something I came across, you know, that we were hoping to bring into class. That's fantastic. Yeah. So this is an air power show. So, you know, most of the examples you talk about are kind of ground force related, but there was a surprising number that dealt with pilots of various types. Do you think pilots have kind of a special place at all in this type of fiction? Yeah, I think they do in large part because like the stories that do focus on the ground forces, the, the focus on individual pilots and small crews allowed the writers and, and certainly the readers to kind of concentrate on individual courageous action in war. And that's the mainstay of these uh, magazines, that, that heroism is at the center of adventure in these men's adventure magazines. So, you know, the best way to, to highlight that in these pulps is to focus on singular acts of bravery in a way to kind of demonstrate that this version of masculinity, this militarized version of masculinity can be an antidote to larger fears about women in the Cold War era emasculating men. And so here, by focusing on pilots who are in, in individual combat or getting shot down and, and working their way back home through enemy lines. It's a way to highlight really tough, strong men and how they can survive the worst of war. And you know, I, I make the argument in the book that these men who are either pilots or, you know, special forces soldiers are really establishing a prototype for what we'll see much later in the late 70s and 80s with, with the Rambo movies and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Chuck Norris. This is a prototype of these future action heroes. And so for the pilots, it's the modern day night on this mechanical steed, right? And it's a trend, I think, that continues throughout the period, you know, whether they're focusing on, on World War II or they're focusing on Korea or on Vietnam, it's, it's an opportunity to showcase that these pilots are, 
are the best of American youth. And again, I think, you know, we see these men as individual warriors, like you'll see later on in the 80s with, you know, a Chuck Norris or a, a Sylvester Stallone movie. You mentioned the, you know, the knight on the steed and, and something that came up a few times in these examples was the trope of the pilot being shot down, kind of knocked off their steed, as, as you say, behind enemy lines and able to do some daring mission. What is the importance of that trope? Does that allow them to do something that other types of fighters couldn't do or... Yeah, it does. And I, I think it, it kind of goes back even to our earlier conceptions of, of who we are as, as Americans on the, the edge of civilization. They, they kind of evoke a John Smith Pocahontas narrative trope, right? And so what they are are these really convenient plot devices where this heroic pilot is shot down on an island and every island just so happens to have very sexually attractive and available local women. So this allows this, you know, bare-chested protagonist to establish his authority over the savage other to master a new domain out on the frontier and, and that space between civilization and, and the savage frontier. Most of the tropes include these scantily clad women and, and the heroic pilot being shot down and then raiding the, the best looking, the finest looking woman on the island, which says something not only about him, but also I would argue the local men. So that's one piece of it. By being shot down behind enemy lines or you know washed ashore on an island, you get to demonstrate your your sexual prowess over the savage other. And I think in other plot devices, you get to see being shot down in crash landing, you know, they'll join the French resistance in World War II. So they get to continue on the fight and, and there'll be the story of, of a pilot getting shot down. They'll join the French resistance. And then of course, they find the, the most strategically located bridge in the entire area and destroy it just in time for the D-Day invasion to happen successfully. Or you'll get similar articles on the Korean War some of them were actually based in real life. There's there's one article in Man's Magazine that, that focuses on two Air Force pilots that were shot down in Korea. They work their way back through enemy lines and they're dealing with the worst of the Korean weather. They're hungry, but they stay together. So they get to demonstrate not only their courage, but their loyalty to each other. And at the end of the story, you know, one of them loses part of their big toe and another actually um, has both of his feet amputated. But still, the story is a way to demonstrate that these pilots are the best of America. American men because they stay together. And you see that all the way through the Vietnam War as well. So it's it's a it's a trope that stays with the magazines despite the wars themselves changing. You know, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, that that cliche of shot down pilot and, and being thrown off your steed stays with the magazines throughout the 50s and 60s. And again, I think it's just a way to demonstrate that that individual heroism despite, you know, your horse being shot out from underneath you in a sense. Right. And the other side, of course, of being shot down is the POW story, right? That affects so many pilots and it's such an iconic part of the Vietnam experience and maybe a very different narrative than what you just described. How do these stories engage with that prisoner of war concept. In a similar fashion, in the sense that, you know, if you think about great movie, The Great Escape with Steve McQueen, right? Like Steve McQueen, despite being captured, retains his masculinity, retains his manhood. Um, so the act of resistance itself is a way to demonstrate your masculinity. And again, to demonstrate your heroism. So even though you're captured, you can still maintain your superiority over your captors. And so there's plenty of pieces, you know, Stag Magazine is as one example focuses in on a World War II pilot, Larry Haber, and, and they dub him Captain Bust Out because every time he's captured, he busts out and he gets captured again and busts out. And so I think that's an important part of it. And in another way, too, what's fascinating is, 
again, it allows you to demonstrate your, your masculinity from a sexual standpoint. So, you know, plenty of American pilots in these stories will be shot down and then are captured almost exclusively by, by nude Amazon women. And, the, and these Amazon women will be in New Guinea. They'll be in French Indochina. They'll, they'll be all over the place. So this trope of one magazine calls them female Tarzans is another way to, to demonstrate your masculinity, even though you're shot down in a way to you know, showcase how you get to maintain your manhood, even though you're, you've been captured as a POW. That makes me think of one of the things that really jumped out at me in your book is women are often portrayed in in different ways, either in this kind of desirable, sexual kind of way. But there's also a strand that portrays women as dangerous enemies. And the one that jumped out to me the most was the Soviet women pilots, which, of course, are historically a real thing. But there's a cover image in your book of the Soviet women, and they're all scantily clad. They're barely wearing anything, jumping out of their planes. Can you talk a little bit about that example, but also this idea of the dangerous woman? Yeah. So on the dangerous woman, I, I think what it does is it, it really adds to this level of anxiety for young readers, especially virginal ones, right? That the magazines construct multiple images of women. They're, they're sexually desirable, but they're also really dangerous. And so you'll see in many of these magazine stories and constructs, women using their bodies as weapons of war. And so I think for young readers, it adds to that anxiety of potentially being emasculated by women in the Cold War era, but potentially being physically harmed or killed by them. So there'll be stories of, you know, an expose of, of inside a, a Russian school for sex spies and about how the communists are, are training these seductive women to infiltrate into the United States and then use their bodies as a way to get intelligence during, against the Americans. And so I think it, it just adds to that level of concern for, that young men have about whether they're going to be able to measure up in a rapidly changing American society after World War II, because there are these multiple constructions of women. You know, the, the one piece you mentioned, it, yeah, it's really interesting. So this wonderful artist, and, and we can't dismiss the importance of the images in these magazines. The illustrations are, are a central component of why the magazines are so popular and why they're so appealing to young readers. So there is this one World War II account of basically a, a squadron of female pilots in, in the Soviet Air Force and uh, Samson Pollan, who's this great artist has got these female Soviet pilots and they're rushing onto an airfield and you know some of them are just wearing their underwear and every one of them's got their hair is perfectly coiffed and they've got red lipstick on one of them's got a flight suit that's that's halfway zipped down so her cleavage is bared and and then the story focuses on these and help rescue an American B17 pilot almost immediately um, makes love with one of them because they have this kind of vodka vodka laden celebration so that's part of the story right he gets captured but then he immediately gets to demonstrate his masculinity by having a, a drunken sexual escapade with the pilots and then they go off on a combat mission together so again that that idea idea of either being captured or shot down doesn't end the story. In fact, it reinforces men's masculinity that they can have the worst of them, which is to get shot down in combat and then continue the storyline on. And they get, again, the best of both worlds. They get to go back into combat and they get to, to have sex with a, a sensual warrior. In many cases, actually adds to the level of, of one's masculinity, right? You can have sex with a female warrior, then does that actually increase your level of, of masculinity, right? And so those constructs are, are there throughout a lot of these storylines as well, which I think are really interesting. 
Yeah, it's the juxtaposition of the sexuality with the violence and not just in the stories themselves, but in just the magazine's construction where, you know, you talk about there there would be a war story and then the next thing you turn the page, it's a pinup art. And then the next thing you turn a page and it's dating advice and just how interesting that is. And it made me think of how common those juxtapositions are in the aviation realm. You know, reading pilot memoirs, you see people talk about their aircraft using these kind of sexual metaphors. And so can you talk a little bit about that juxtaposition of sex and violence in these magazines and what effect do you think that's having? I, I don't think you can understand the, the magazines without that juxtaposition. And I think that's why the magazines themselves are so popular. Even in the PX system, um, one of the things I found, I spent some time doing some research at the National Archives in Maryland, and I got into those exchange records to see what magazines were selling. Of the top 20, um, and this is as late as 1967, 12 to 13 on, on a monthly basis would fall within the men's adventure magazine category. But this juxtaposition of, of sex and, and heroic battlefield, I think, is what separates these apart. And I think you do see them in, in some of the pilot memoirs. And I think you and I briefly talked earlier about Robin Olds, you know, has this, I think he co-writes a, a memoir with his daughter called Fighter Pilot. And he earns a special feature in, in Man's Magazine, which is really interesting. And, and it's really fascinating because in the magazine article, there he's now, by, by this point, a an F-4 Phantom jet pilot. And he's kind of educating this one officer. They're having a con- this conversation back and forth about prospects for victory. And, and Olds kind of turns to his superior and he says, our, our pilots are not going to win this war with machinery, sir. We're, we're going to win this war with men. And so that that motif, I think, is really strong. And, and you see it. I mean, you, you only is Olds um, using that motif in, in the magazine article, but it's central to his his arguments that he's making in his memoir itself. And so I, I think it's really, really important. And, you know, if we kind of flip this around, what I found also interesting were that there was one, it was actually a, a cover article in True War that talked about how of homosexual serving in, in the Luftwaffe. So they had, they had had this, you know, ex, expose from an ex-Duca pilot um, who was sharing how these high-strung, hysterical, homosexual, in his words, perverts were undermining the morale and thus efficiency and effectiveness of the, you know, Hitler's Air Force. And so, you know, that's the flip side of all this is that these popular conceptions that, that homosexual sexual men are emotionally unstable or prone to panic or, or filled with neuroses, all the things that are not what real men in battle do. That's the other part of the storyline in, in many of these magazine articles. And in many cases, they'll actually do that comparison between homosexual men who aren't stable enough, who aren't strong enough to serve in the military and compare that to folks like Robin Olds, who clearly have demonstrated that his worth over multiple wars. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that so many people are reading these stories that are about World War II as they're going into Vietnam. And this is something you brought out that I really appreciated because it's something, again, that I've noticed in other places and you put it together really well. Uh, you say that Americans had been seduced by World War II or or maybe an idealized version of that and thought that that was going to replay out. Can you unpack that idea a little bit and how that comes across in these stories? Yeah, I, I think and it's a really important point, especially when you put it in 
in the context of, of larger anxieties and insecurities in the Cold War era. This idea of men potentially being emasculated by all of these social changes, by women coming back and exercising their rights in the aftermath of World War II, you know, concerns about women who left the domestic sphere during the war and not willingly going back into that domestic sphere. And so, you know, a lot of these definitions of masculinity in the pulps are, are really fragile in relationship to women. And so I think what's so alluring about World War II then is that if you are anxious about your, your masculinity, then you can just focus on World War II battlefield exploits to showcase how men are really strong and demonstrating their manhood against, I mean, let's be, let's be frank, right? Uh, you know, you can't ask for a better enemy than the Nazis, right? And if you're a director with putting together a war movie, the Nazis are straight out of central casting. And so, you know, to, ha to have young American boys who are strong, these citizen soldiers who are showcasing their grit and strength, you know, this is a way to escape in many young readers' minds and, and even veterans' minds, I would argue. What they see is overbearing wives or domineering bosses. And, and this is an antidote to, to those feelings of emasculation and, and even, I would argue, potentially post-traumatic stress for veterans who are reluctant to share their experiences, that they can kind of you know, feel good about themselves and be entertained by reading stories of these heroic exploits um, that are, are pretty black and white. That's part of the good war narrative that I think is emerging even during the war, at World War II itself, that you know we're fighting for clearly a good cause. We're fighting a clearly evil enemy, whether it's the Japanese in the Pacific or, or the Nazis in, in the European theater. And there's a clear outcome, which is unconditional surrender of those enemies. And so that's what to me is so alluring about World War II and these storylines. And, you know, the other thing I found interesting, a lot of them are being written by really popular military historians of the day. Robert Leckie, SLA Marshall, Norman Mailer, they're, they're writing stories that are focused on, on these heroic exploits. And many of them are focused on Medal of Honor recipients and, and, and showcasing their exploits. And so it just fits in so many ways, right? That there's a simple construction of good versus evil. We'll see that later, I think, with, with Stephen Ambrose's work, which is why I think that's so popular. But I, I think what's also really important here is that that good war narrative, whether on the ground or in the air in these magazines is, is really a sanitized version of reality. And that's, I think, a, a, a really problematic consequence of these magazines is that they're constructing a version of warfare that just doesn't match the ugly side of reality. It's in these magazines that that good war flourishes, that good war narrative flourishes. And I just don't know how helpful that is for young readers who ultimately then go to Vietnam because they're expecting war to be heroic. And when it's not, it's so frustrating. And I've wondered, even since I've written the book, whether those types of gaps between rhetoric and reality contribute to post-traumatic stress. Because if it, if it just increases that gap between expectation and reality, does that gap contribute to post-traumatic stress? Because you're, you're just having a harder time reconciling the awful reality of war with what you were expecting going in. Right. I think that's the central question kind of underneath all of this. And we don't really have these magazines anymore, but we have things like them in movies and TV shows and other forms of pop culture. So it's a question that I think stays with us. 
Yeah, it does. I, I think it, it asks a larger question, I think, about why we remember war in certain ways. I mean, and what is the the stories that we tell each other say about who we are as as Americans who are dealing with our, our much larger military experience? You know, we, we want to portray war in a in a certain way, we we want it to be not only useful, but still, I would argue, glamorous and heroic. And we want to feel good about it. And I think when, you know, you're seeing it right now as President Biden declared that we're going to end the long war in Afghanistan. Just today, there, there were veterans going on on media shows saying that we didn't lose the war militarily. We still want to believe certain narratives about the not just the utility of military engagements, but those that are engaging in, the, um, in a way that, that makes us feel good about ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. History is the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, as they say. And I think this this book gets at that. We're running a little low on time, but I have one more question I have to ask. And our listeners can't see your amazing background, which is filled with superhero memorabilia. Um, so I, I have to ask you as a fellow comic nerd, what's your favorite superhero? I grew up um, with Amazing Spider-Man as my my go-to. My run of Amazing Spider-Man from the late 60s or 70s is, is the one that I still have with me. Yeah, so that uh, I, I was always a Marvel kid growing up, but but Peter Parker was always the one that spoke to me loudest. I don't know if he would have helped us win the war in Vietnam or not. Uh, <laughs> nice. That's a great answer. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming on the show. The book is Pulp Vietnam, War and Gender in Cold War Men's Adventure Magazines from Cambridge University Press. Where else can we find you online or on social media or anything like that? Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Gregory Dattis, and I'm teaching a war and gender course uh, this semester and, and sharing some um, some posters and, and photos online to hopefully have some folks follow along as I'm teaching in class. Fantastic. Well, I am on Twitter at Hankenstein with a T-I-E-N and on Instagram at HankensNW. All of us are online at balloonstodrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. Uh, to send us an email, please visit balloonstodrones.com slash contact or submit an article for publication at balloonstodrones.com slash submissions. And we'll see you next time. Greg, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Mike. I really appreciate it. Bye.